I often say it, but it's uh, such a privilege coming into the, the presence of God through worship. It's, it's incredible as you're worshipping to have that tangible presence of God, not just something's happening, but to know that, that God is here. And, uh, and I, I love encountering his presence, whether it's here in church corporately, whether it's in my office when I'm praying, whether it's at home. Uh, it's just so good to be in the presence of God, and, uh, and I, I certainly couldn't live my life without him. And, and I look at all the things that are happening in the world today, I look at all the, the trauma that's going on, I look at all the struggles that people are going through. Without Jesus, we don't have a hope. Amen? If you don't know him, ask. God, I want you to reveal yourself to me, and I'll cover that a bit later on. But over the last uh, couple of months, we've been looking at um, the topic of faith. And uh, what I love about faith, I mean, Bernie was saying it this morning in his prophetic word, push into the word of God. Devour the word of God. You look at this, this first scripture. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith is the foundation. You look at uh, the Amplified Bible. It says, now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see and the conviction of their reality. The whole thing is with faith is that we, we so often look at things, I want to know up here. I want to know what's going on. I want to reason it out. And faith goes beyond that, goes beyond what I see in the natural and says, I'm actually going to trust God. The, the Greek word, um, I was thinking of this week, the Greek word gnosko, I think that's how it's pronounced, basically means knowing or knowledge. And you look at the word agnostic, comes from that word gnosko as well, that's included. Because it's someone who says, you can't know God, or we don't know enough about God. Knowing is, is all up here. Faith is actually a hard issue. It includes what I've seen in the natural, it includes what I've seen around me, but it comes to a point where I have to trust God is real for me today. As I pray, as I believe God for miracles, I've got to see God's going to act on my behalf. Uh, Pete Harvey was sharing with me, I think it was uh, earlier this week, that, uh, that Alwyn came to the, the men's group and was feeling quite sick. And Pete said, well, before you go home, because he's going to go home and rest, can I pray with you? I hope I got this story right. And, uh, and he says, sure. So Pete prayed with him, instant healing. Alan was the last one to leave that day. But the thing is, knowing God's going to heal you is one thing, trusting that he will is another. And faith comes at that point of God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to, I'm going to allow you to prove yourself. Because the Bible talks, uh, we're looking in Malachi, it says, put me to the test. I think it's in Malachi, prove me now in this. Put me to the test, see if I won't fulfill this. And so often we're saying, God, I'm not sure you're real. Well, ask him to prove himself. If God has a fault and he doesn't, it's that he loves us. It's that he loves to prove his love for us. He loves to bless us because that's who he is. God is love. And we so often think God's this horrible, mean person in the sky who wants to destroy us for doing things wrong or every time we might possibly cross the line, God's going to write us off. That's not who God is. God's a God of love. He cares about you. He loves you. He wants the very, very best for you. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at what faith is and when you're at your weakest. I remember preaching this message when I was really sick, went on for two weeks. Faith when you're falling, when you can't stand, still being able to trust God. When you can't see what's happening, still trusting God. When the walls around you seem so big, seeing something bigger. I'm trusting God when I don't know what's going on. 
Faith looks at the walls and says, I acknowledge you, but I see beyond you. And that's one of the problems we often have. It's all up in our head. What do I see in front of me? It's not what I see in front of me, it's what I see beyond me. The next one we looked at is the elements of faith. And there are certain things that, we, that, are, that faith requires. Some of those are conviction. And this wasn't an, an endless list. But faith requires conviction. We have to be convinced. A convinced uh, to be convinced on something means there's been an argument taking place. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative argument, but it's an argument where this has been proven. God has proven himself. I'm convinced now because of something that's happened in the past so I can now believe for the future. It's a past, present tense thing, faith, and we need to be convinced now because God has actually proven himself. And time and time and time again, God has proven himself. We can't see things in the natural. We can't always see uh, the spiritual stuff, sorry, in the natural, but we see the evidence of it. We see the fact that people get prayed and they get healed. I've seen the fact that my father, who was a cripple laying in bed, and the doctor said, there is no hope, your spine will not recover, get up and walk. I've seen God recreate people. I know that God's a faithful God. Faith requires maintenance. If I'm going to have a conviction on something, the enemy's going to come in and try and convince me otherwise. Because the argument that takes place that gets me to the place now where I'm convinced, that argument will continue because Satan doesn't want me to be in God's presence. He doesn't want me to have favour with God. He doesn't want me to, to have this life of victory. He wants to see me destroyed. He hates Jesus and his intention is to keep us separated from God. And he will try and convince you over and over and over again. No matter how strong your faith is, he will continue to try and challenge you. He even said to Jesus, are you sure you can jump off this, off this, uh, this building and be saved? He, he quoted God's word at him. He did all sorts of things, putting him to the test. Prove yourself. Jesus just kept saying, it's written. It's written. It's written. He had a conviction. And we have to continue to maintain our faith. We have to continue, as Bernie said this morning, we have to continue to press into the word. We have to continue pursuing God. Faith requires vision. I don't just need to see what's in front of me, I need to see what's beyond me. Jesus answered the fig tree. And what I love is that that word answer means to conclude for oneself. That doesn't just mean talk back, it means I've come to a conclusion for myself. So I might stand before my walls, my walls might say I'm so big you're not getting past me. Well I don't care what you say, my conclusion is God's bigger. That's answering back, that's standing in faith, that's standing with a conviction that God is who he is. Faith requires choice. I have to choose to agree with God. I have to choose to walk this out. I have to choose to say, God, you know more than I do. God's been around for a lot longer than I have. God's proven himself so many more times. I am only 48. That doesn't even compare to what God's age is. So what makes me think that I know more than God? And I look around in society today and I'm going, so many people think they've got it together. They say, I can't possibly know God. No, you can't. Not to the full extent, but you can know God through relationship. And God wants relationship. And God wants to prove himself. And I need to, in my faith, I need to come to a point where I actually line myself and say, God, you said, so I will take you at your word. How many people have ever had kids say, you said? <laughs> How many people have ever been those kids that said, you said. I think as parents we can come back. You said you would clean your room. But God wants, to, wants us to hear that. We go and say, God, you said. 
You said by his stripes you were healed. You said you would provide for me. I need to stand my ground and trust God. Faith requires persistence. Never, 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 never give up. Who's ever given up? I'm glad I'm not the only one putting my hand up. There's times we say, it's just too hard. I just can't do it. No, you can't. God can. And God's the one doing the work. Again, this video we showed a few weeks ago, these walls coming down. If I was to stand in front of a 10-story building and yell at it, come down, nothing's going to happen. But God can break it down. And that's what happened. And we see that time and time again. We also looked at the law of faith. When it comes to faith, God has a part and we have a part. And so often we just say, well, God, you have to do it. God, you have to do it. Well, we have to stand our ground. We have to continue believing. We have to continue speaking to that mountain until it's gone. We have to continue reading the word. We have to continue growing in the word. There's a part that I have to play. And and the spiritual laws of God, I, I love this part, the spiritual laws of God were used to create the physical laws that we see before us. So the physical laws, the stuff that we we use for logic, the stuff that we use for reason, were created by spiritual laws. So the spiritual laws supersede the physical laws. And because our faith is based on the Bible, last week we looked at faith in the Word. Proving the Bible is the Word of God. Because God says that what He does, sorry, because God says what He does lines up with the Bible, We've got to look at the Bible itself. We've got to come to that place where we say, I'm convinced the Bible is the Word of God. Not just a book, but I am convinced it is the Word of God. And when I'm convinced it's the Word of God and I'm convinced it's relevant for me today, I then need to live my life based on that Word. We looked at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The response to his calling and acknowledging the fact that he is our rabbi, we are the disciples. We live according to his yoke. We live according to his teaching. And when a rabbi calls someone, he says, come follow me. And we saw that with the disciples. Jesus says to us, come follow me. He wants us to follow him. And when we we become one of his disciples, we are then required to teach what he teaches. And that's why it's so important for us to understand with this plebiscite coming up, we actually don't have an opinion apart from what God says. You might say, but I don't agree. Well, you haven't been around long enough. God's been around a lot longer. God knows a lot more and God created marriage so we need to do it his way. But the disciples, when they became, when they connected themselves to the rabbi, they said, I am a part of your family. And we look in Hebrews 13.5, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Galatians 6.10 refers to us as the household of faith. So again, we see that I don't just live my own life, I become part of God's family. And that leads us into today's message, which is unlock your identity. Because we need to know who we are in Christ. I can stand on the word of God, I can believe, but I've I've got to come to a place where I acknowledge who I am and see myself as God sees me. So I want to start off with a bit of a game. It's a who am I question, can you identify me? And when you think you've got this person, yell it out. I was born the fourth son of my parents on July 26, 1939. I was born in Earlwood and was raised in a Methodist family. I suffered from hearing impairment in my youth, which resulted in me from having a slight speech impediment. I worked in a service station when I was young, but I went on to study law and became very successful. 
I represented my secondary school in debating, as well as cricket and rugby, but cricket remained my lifelong hobby. I joined the Liberal Party in 1957. John Howard, yep. So I'll keep reading through. I became Prime Minister at the age of 56. I ended a record 13-year coalition opposition. Labor uh, ended 13 years in 1996. I championed significant new restrictions on gun ownership following the Port Arthur Massacre. In 1974 federal election, successfully contested the Sydney suburban seat of Bennelong. In January 2008, I signed with a prominent speaking agency called the Washington Speakers Bureau. I was nominated as a candidate for president of the International Cricket Council. My autobiography is called Lazarus Rising, a personal and political autobiography. I'm the 25th Prime Minister of Australia. I was the second longest serving Australian Prime Minister after Sir Robert Menzies. My middle name is Winston and my nickname as a boy was Jack. Who am I? John Howard. Now what's interesting when you look at that is layers of information start getting given and the more information you get, the easier it becomes to identify who this person is. We look at the first bit, he was born in 1939, okay, it's an old guy. Older guy. <laughs> Raised in a Methodist family. It's an older Christian guy. I have a slight speech impediment. Okay, it's an older, older Christian guy who has trouble speaking or saying some things. It's an older Christian guy with a speech impediment who studied law, who loves cricket, who joined the Liberal Party, all these things start building, you gather more information and now you can identify who this person is. Because the reality is the simple definition of identity is to link two points of information together. The more information you have about one person, you know who John Howard is, you know rough information about his life, the more information you have over here enables you to tie the two together. So to identify someone means to link the information together. Now, if I was to say that I'm an Olympic marathon runner, you would take two points of information, what an Olympic marathon runner should look like, and me, and you would identify that I'm not an Olympic marathon runner. No, it's not true. I'm not an Olympic... <laughs> but if I was to say I'm a musician, you say, well, what does a musician sound like? You would hear me play and you say, yes, it's true. I identify with the fact that you are a musician. So it's linking that information together. So when I say I identify with Christ, I'm saying that I want to link myself to him. I want to say that I want to be like him. And when you look at me, when all the pieces of information you see about me are put together, you would say, Christian, Christ follower. So my identity with Christ should actually be something you can identify and say, yes, that's true. Now, how many of you have ever seen someone who calls himself a Christian and yet you would say, I just, no. I'm sure we've all seen people like that. Sometimes we may have been that person. But what I need to look at and say, Jesus is actually my measuring stick. If I want to identify with Christ, I have to look and say, well, that's what Christ looks like. I need to fit in with this. I need to change my life so that I fit with all these different points of criteria. I don't always measure up exactly as I should. None of us do because none of us are perfect. But the same as when you look at John Howard, I'm sure there was information in there you didn't know. 
But now you know those things, you know more about him. The more I know about Christ, the more I practice, the more I live, the more I can become like him. But I will not reach perfection until I'm there with him in heaven. So I continue working, I continue trying, I continue pushing through. And we look at when God made man, he firstly intended for us to resemble him. And this is looking at our identity. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God intended for you and I to look like him, to act like him. You look at this whole thing, to, uh, to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God gave earth for our dominion. He wants us to live like him. Secondly, God wanted to have a relationship with man. I love that when you look in Genesis 3, that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Can you imagine the conversations they would have had? That wasn't intended for God to use this as a lecture time. It was, it was intended for God to have a relationship. And I think, you know, Adam would have first come, uh, he was created mature, obviously, so God, having relationship, having conversation with him, brings all the animals to him and says, name all these. Can you imagine God going, I don't know why you called it a cat, but you called it a cat. What were you thinking? God would have had these interesting conversations. I'm only trying to picture what it might have been. And then Adam going like, this goldfish thing, what? Why? God says, well, why would you call it a goldfish when it's orange? You imagine these conversations going forth. But God wanted a relationship. And we so often see this God as a father in the sky, but God just wants to talk to us, have conversation one-on-one with us. We need to know that we're God's perfect design. Psalm 119 verse 73 says, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. It's important to know that God thought you through in every piece of detail. He didn't just slap you together. He didn't just slap any of us together. We have a purpose, we have a plan. God has intention with us. I'm going to ask you a question. Where are your fingerprints? Where do they end? Nope. Who's ever studied their hand? I looked at my hand under the light last night because I thought, my fingerprints are unique. There's no other fingerprints like mine. And as I held them up to the light, I realized the fingerprints finish here. And I've never seen that before. They're quite worn out in the palm, but you can still see the grooves that finish at the base of your... I can tell these people look at it, I didn't know that. (laughs) But God created you uniquely. None of you are the same. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) But Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for you created me with respect reverence and honour and made me distinct, unique and distinguished. Marvellous are your works and that my soul knows very well. That's my translation of the, the Hebrew there. I will praise you for you. The Bible says I was fearfully and wonderfully made. The Hebrew says you created me with respect, reverence and honour and made me distinct, 
unique and distinguished. God had a plan and a purpose for you from the moment he thought of you. David was able to see himself as a masterpiece. When he put this together, he said, God, I am your masterpiece. I am your perfect creation. But then man sinned. What did that mean for God? Did God get a shock? Did God fall off his throne? Did God get disappointed? You know, nothing changed. God didn't get surprised that man sinned. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. God had a plan and a purpose beforehand that you should walk in them. God planned great things for you before you were born. Is God that strategic? Absolutely. You have to know God thinks that way. Revelation 13.8 refers to the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. When God made the world, the foundation of a world comes in, or the foundation of a building before the building's complete. The foundation of the world was the point when God started thinking about it. And back then, that's when Jesus was already slain because he'd made the commitment, I'm doing this. He knew you would mess up. He knew you would sin. He knew you'd never be perfect because you're not God. He knew Satan would come and try and destroy us. And he says, I'm going to put things in place before that even happens. Yes, God is that strategic. 1 Peter 18, uh, 1, 18-21 says that we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ who was chosen to redeem us before the foundation of the world. It's mentioned several times. It's not an accident. God planned your deliverance from the day he thought of you. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. Psalm 139.16 says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Again, God planned your life before you were born. He knew you would be sitting here today. He knew you would go through the things you've gone through in the last few weeks. He knows where you will be next week. He knows what your life is going to be like in 20 years' time. He knows because he has planned your life and mapped it all out before a single day has passed. And as I was writing this down, this just came really strong. I'm not sure if it's a prophetic word for someone or not, but I'm just going to read it out. You are not a shock to God. You are not a disappointment. You are a diamond in the rough. But when you are placed in the hands of God, you don't just become a diamond that is beautiful to behold. You become a jewel that, is incredible, that has incredible value to God. God is that strategic with you. We often look at ourselves and go, oh, well, I couldn't possibly compare to God. I couldn't possibly. God couldn't possibly use me. No, God chose you. You might say, God couldn't possibly. Well, he already has. So get over it. He loves you that much. The thing is, we often look at our failures and we say, well, I've done this wrong, I've done that wrong, I've done this wrong. I want to give you a bit of an example. If I want to make a pot, I have to start with the clay. Now, what is the pot on the left-hand side? Almost finished. They haven't gone through the kiln yet, but it's the pot. It's finished. On the right-hand side, what is that? No. It's an unfinished pot. (laughs) Because one says, I'm a lump now. One says, I've got a plan and a purpose. And we so often look at the lump before us and say, I'm just a lump. But God goes, "Uh uh-uh, I've got a vision. 
you're an unfinished pot. These imperfections, there's times when potters make things, they actually have to smash it all together again. And they have to, I've got to start again, because it's not exactly what I want. The reason they can say that is because what I want is the finished product, and they're still working towards that. You're not a lump, you're an unfinished pot. Which one do you think God sees when he looks at you? The finished pot. So you might be a lump at the moment. You might be halfway through the design. You might be at the point where God has to pummel you back into another lump because he's got to make a few tweaks. Got to get some air bubbles out. But God works to a plan. Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God has an end product in mind. This is plans to prosper you. This is future tense. This is plans not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Future tense. God is working to a plan for your life. John 15, 16 says that Jesus did not choose me. Sorry, I I did not choose him. He chose me. And I love the fact that Jesus says, despite the fact you're just a lump, I still want you. Because a potter has to get the lump before he creates the pot. So as lumpy as you might be, you're exactly what God wants. And before we talked about identifying with Christ and living according to his standard, but now we need to look at my identity is in Christ. So now I don't just look at myself, I don't just see the lump, I've now got to see what God sees. I've got to see the finished product. Because God chose me, he saw value in me, I'm his masterpiece, he is making me into something with purpose, and again we go back to Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, you are his masterpiece. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are his masterpiece. Now, understanding that, understand that God is working towards a plan, what do you think the enemy's task is in all this? To destroy the pot? To make you think you're just a lump and no good? Because if the clay actually had control, if the clay could say to the potter, I don't care what you think, I don't think I'm good enough, so I'm just going to hide myself in the cupboard here and you can go find another piece of clay. But every potter knows exactly what he needs in the clay that he's looking for, how much he needs, the size, the texture. Satan's plan is to steal, kill and destroy. John 10.10 says, The the thief does not come except to steal, to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they have it more abundantly. His plan, Satan's plan, is to destroy you, to steal, to kill, to destroy. It's as simple as that. It's black and white. First, uh, First Peter 5, 8 says, The enemy walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Too many people say the devil walks about as the lion. But it says he walks about like a roaring lion. He tries to deceive you. He cannot go beyond the authority that you give him. He doesn't have any authority. Jesus took that away. But you were created in God's image. Jesus gave all authority to you. Satan understands that. So if you hold the authority, he's got to get you to act on his behalf. So if he can walk around like a roaring lion to make you cower, to make you think, I can't do this, 
then he wins. God wants to destroy, uh, sorry, Satan wants to destroy you. His job is to steal, to kill, to destroy. God's job is to give you an abundant life. I looked up that word abundant life in Greek and it means super abundant. Not just a little bit extra, super abundant. So the devil's job is to steal, kill and destroy. God's job is to bless your life abundantly. Good God, bad devil. Nice simple summary. If it's good, it's from God. If it's bad, it's from the devil. If it produces life, it's from God. If it's a result of death, stealing, destruction, it's from the enemy. It's really simple. We don't need to get it mixed up, do we? And yet we do. Deuteronomy 30.19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. And that's not witnesses against me. It's saying, we're going to testify this day, this moment. I'm calling heaven as witness to this very moment. That's what he's saying. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Abundant life, death, stealing, killing, destroying. God says, I've set before you life and I've also set before you death and destruction. But therefore, choose life. And the, new, the, uh, the NLT says uh, something along the lines of God begging you, please choose life. I can't remember the wording it uses, but God says, there's a good choice, there's a bad choice. Please make the good choice. It's really obvious, but he's never going to take that choice away from us. There's two choices, life and death. I remember when our kids were young, Daniel would go, I don't like broccoli. I don't want to eat my broccoli. I put before you life and death. (laughs) What I would say to him is, you can have broccoli or nothing. Broccoli or nothing. Broccoli, I'll have broccoli. (laughs) But God says, I've put two choices before you. There's a real obvious one I want you to have. We need to choose what God wants. God made us to have relationship with him. He put everything in place so that when we mess up, not if, but when you mess up, There's a plan and a purpose for you to come back into right relationship with God. God who made heaven and earth, God who created the universe, God who hung the stars and the planets wants relationship with you. That blows my mind. I just look outside this window and I see all this sort of stuff outside. There is no way that came from a bang that supposedly came from nothing. I've been thinking over some of the things that the, uh, you know, the evolutionists might say and say, well, it all came from a bang. Well, out of all the explosions that have been on the earth, not once ever has anything good come from it. And yet this one bang, by sheer chance, the first time it happened, life was formed. And time goes on and this blob in the water suddenly decides, hey, I'm going to get out of the water. I know what happens if I go into water and I stay there. I will drown. There's not enough evolutionary time for my lungs to go, I need to learn how to be a fish. 
It doesn't make sense to my little brain. But Satan comes to steal, kill and destroy. He wants to wipe out the fact that God loves you, that God cares for you, that God created you. Because if God doesn't exist, you're nothing more than a lump of clay. But God says, I see more. Kenneth Hagin wrote a book, Tongues Beyond the Upper Room. And in that, he said he had a visitation from God. He saw him before him and he said, I will visit every hungry heart. So the question is, how hungry are we? How hungry are you? Do you really want to see God break through in your life? Do you want to see God do some amazing things in your life? Too many people aren't desperate. It's like, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. I don't understand this. Therefore, I'm probably never going to understand it. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. You have to be intentional if you want to find God. You have to get desperate. If you're looking for answers, say, God, I want to know. Like I said at the start, if God's got a fault and he doesn't, but if he does, it's that he loves us so much. And when you as his child come before him and say, God, I just need to know whether you're real. Because every single one of us in this room will question God at some stage. If you haven't, you will. Because it's normal to question God. It's normal to say, where do I fit in this mix? It's normal to say, who am I? I grew up as a Christian, but there came a point in my life where I had to decide, I'm a Christian because I'm a Christian, not because my parents are. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I need to get to the point and say, God, I need you to prove yourself. So if you're at that point where saying, God, I have questions, ask them. Ask God to prove himself because God doesn't just see the lump of clay in front of me, sees a finished pot. He wants to create you into something amazing. So if we look at just a few scriptures quickly, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Put your hand up if you come under the all category. I come under all. So I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. When I work, I earn wages. We all understand the concept of wages. But the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. The payment for sin is death. We go back to the previous one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all have earned the wages of death. Eternal separation from God. But the gift of God, free gift, you don't work for it. God gives this to you because he wants to, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, this is the part I love. If we confess, he is faithful and just. I don't have to go, well, maybe you won't forgive me for this particular thing because I was actually pretty bad here. All right, I think I crossed a line here that I shouldn't have crossed. No, no, if you confess it as sins, I will forgive. God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name. Again, there's no conditions on this. He doesn't say, well, you can, you can't, you stay in that line, you stay in that line. If you call, I will answer. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You notice this doesn't say pray the sinner's prayer. You know when the sinner's prayer came in was somewhere in the 1800s. 
What happened to the people before that? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My grandma was a devout Catholic. She never prayed the sinner's prayer, so to speak. I remember my dad one day saying he was just so upset that as a Catholic she hadn't, still young Christians, as a Catholic she never prayed the sinner's prayer and she died and he was devastated because I never got her to pray the prayer. And one day in worship he just had a picture of her in heaven worshipping God. And God reminded him of this scripture. She confessed with her mouth the Lord Jesus. If anybody said that Jesus was, was a liar, she would tear shreds off him. This wonderful little old lady would become a violent, aggressive, <laughs> deadly weapon. <laughs> Maybe not that bad. But she was Dutch. <laughs> that explains it all. <laughs> a Dutch Catholic. You don't come against... If God said he's God, he is God. That's the end of the discussion. That's what she was like. But if you believe in your heart, God raised him for the dead, you will be saved. There is no reason why somebody who hasn't prayed the sinner's prayer, this is the condition for your salvation. And the last one, Revelation 3.10, sorry, 3.20, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You have to choose to open that door. It's your choice. It's as simple as that. God says, call on me and I will answer. It says, when you search me with all your heart, you will find me. But God also says, you're not just a lump. You're the pot unfinished and I've still got work to do in you. So let's all stand. I thank God for the fact that he loves me. I thank God for the fact that he sees something of value in me. I I see questions that I so often have and I know God still loves me regardless of my shortcomings. You know the old saying, God loves me warts and all. Every fault I have, every problem I have, God still loves me. He says, I see the lump in front of me but I see a finished product. And that's what God sees in you. So, We're just going to pray. I just want everyone to pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I am not a lump. I thank you that I am a pot unfinished. I thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for my life. Yes, I have questions. Yes, I have failed. Yes, I don't understand everything. But I choose to surrender to you. I choose to acknowledge you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you raised from the dead. I thank you that you are my God and that I am part of your family. And I acknowledge you as my Saviour. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you that you are our King. We thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for our life. We thank you that you see something greater. We thank you that we are not a chance. Lord, that you are our God, that you are our King, and that you are amazing. And we declare your Lordship. We acknowledge you as God. We want to thank you for everything you've done. And we bless and honour you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and have a great week. If you would like prayer, come up the front. We'll love to pray with you. Don't forget, for those who want to know more information about the... uh, Uh, the Australian Christian Lobby uh, information. There's not a whole lot of information